Welcome to UKIS I Tell, the newly rebranded podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Every month we'll be getting together with a guest who's an expert in their field to talk through some of the key issues of our time. So whether you're into constitutional law or politics or international relations, subscribe and listen in because this is the place you'll figure out what's really going on. And welcome to the UK in a Changing Europe podcast. I'm really pleased that today for this edition, we've got with us Anne Applebaum. Anne is, of course, a staff writer for The Atlantic and also a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She's written so much and covered so many issues that we're going to get through a lot today. But first and foremost, Anne, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Can we start with uh, Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine? I was very struck a year ago. Uh, you wrote an article in which you said the US is naive about Russia, Ukraine can't afford to be. Do you think a year on, the West is less naive than it used to be? Oh, by definition, the West is less naive. I mean, the the the, the number of people who've had to completely revise their views of what Russia is and what Russia's intentions are is, uh, is very large. Um, I think the the major shift has probably occurred in, in Europe. Um, from a belief that Russia was still a kind of partner to an understanding that Russia could pose an existential threat to Central Europe, maybe even Western Europe, and not just a political and economic threat, but also a military threat. There's a lot of talk at the moment about what the ultimate objective should be. And and there are people still cautioning against a Russian defeat uh, and saying that actually, ultimately, we're going to have to negotiate. What do you make of that? And what, what's your take on that? Well, so of course, we're going to have to negotiate one way or the other. The war will end with a negotiation. But I think it's important to understand that if you want the war to end forever, in other words, you don't want it to end for six months and then continue or even three years and then continue if you want there to be an end to Russian imperialism in the modern world, um, if you want Ukraine to survive as a state, if you want Russia's neighbors to, to remain normal, stable countries, then yes, there has to be a Russian defeat, and it has to come in the form of a Russian realization that this invasion was a mistake and that that, that the, the empire is finished. And you know, there and you know that could take different forms, um, depending on what happens inside Russian politics, depending on what happens on the ground. Um, I'm not offering a formula or saying the border has to be here or there, but um, there has to be a moment when the Russians understand the war was a mistake; it was an error. Um, we're going to withdraw our troops. I would say, at the very least, back to the borders of February of last year. Um, maybe, maybe back to the borders of 2014, if that's what it takes. But there has to be a moment when they conclude um, this is this is not the way forward for our country. We're destroying our country. We're wrecking its prospects. We're we're wrecking its economy. We're wrecking our relationships with the rest of the world. And that and if you want to call that a defeat, yes, that's a that's a kind of defeat, um, and that needs to happen. Or or we could be in the position where there's some kind of ceasefire or some kind of temporary agreement. And then the war begins again in a few years' time. Do you have any any sympathy with those European statesmen, those European commentators who are reluctant to send heavy weaponry and particularly tanks to Ukraine because of the implications that might have? 
I'm really not sympathetic at all, because at this point, we know that most of what the, the, the kinds of threats that the Russians make about what they will or won't do, most of that is bluff. Most of it is their way of deterring us. Um, um, you, you know, we are now at the phase of the war where the Ukrainians need to take back territory. In other words, they need to go on the offensive. Uh, and it's pretty clear that one of the tools that you need to go on the offensive is modern tanks, um, maybe longer range weapons as well. Um, and, you know, I just don't see that there's any moral or political difference between tanks and artillery. I mean, what's, why would you give one and not the other? You know, why pretend there's some huge distinction between them? I mean, I don't think that these are different categories of weapons. Um, and, you know, I, I know that people have in the back of their heads this idea of, you know, we can't escalate. But the problem is that the Russians are escalating all the time. They keep um, carrying out more atrocities. They're, they, they, you know, they run torture centers and detention centers and concentration camps on the territory of occupied Ukraine. We know about all that, too. Um, and so they're, they're fine with escalating. So I think it's time for us to understand that we need to, um, you, know, we, you, know, you know, what we're doing is not provocative. What we're doing is a legitimate response. Have you been uh, disappointed by the European response? I mean, the bulk of the heavy lifting in military terms has been done by the United States. And to date, the bulk of the economic assistance has come from the United States, too. I mean, have you been slightly disappointed by how relatively slow the Europeans have been to step up to the plate? So I, in some ways, I've been positively surprised by the the unity of Europe. I'm pleased that it's there. I mean, there were some doubts, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I might have not believed that we would even be this unified a year on. Um, it's not quite true that Europe doesn't, you know, there's actually quite a lot of EU money has gone to um, has gone to Ukraine. And, you know, there have been weapons contributions from everybody from the UK to Germany, I think is actually now the third largest donor in terms of weapons, the Poles have given weapons. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not as if there's, there's nothing coming from Europe. I mean, I think, though, that the war has shown up this enormous disparity between the size and the capabilities of the U.S. military and everybody else. Um, and, you know, we can, we can go on pretending that, you know, European armies are somehow in the same class as the American army, but it's just really not true. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I hope will be the outcomes of this war is that, all this kind of vague talk about, you know, European defense and European strategic autonomy that you sometimes hear from the French and others, I hope that this is a kind of wake-up call. You know, right now, Europe is, and, and by the way, Britain too, um, you know, are, we do, are, is, not, is not viable as a military force in the modern world without American help. Um, you know, the, in fact, the sizes of our armies have shrunk. The amount of weapons that we're capable of producing, we Europeans, is is very small. Um, and it really doesn't compare to what the United States is capable of. It's just it's just a, it's not even on the same scale. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have to say my sense is that Europeans get wake up call after wake up call, but are quite fond of pressing snooze rather than uh, reacting. Look, people don't want to change their way of life. They don't want to change their priorities. Everybody liked the end of the Cold War and the idea that, you know, there weren't going to be any conflicts anymore. Um, people believed this thing about, you know, norms and borders and, you know, nothing nothing in Europe can change because we've changed the rules of the way international relations happen. And, you know, the, the fact that, I mean, it's been clear for some time that that's not true, but it's now just been brought home by this war. And it requires very, very big shifts, very big changes in how we, you know, spend money, how we run our armies, 
And, you know, there are a lot of people who are invested in the current system who don't want to change it. And, I mean, you can see it most glaringly in Germany, but I would say there are elements of it in every European country. No, absolutely. And I have to say, in retrospect, however many years afterwards, just thinking back to Robert Kagan's book, there is, I think, I don't know if you agree, there has been a sort of sense of denial about geopolitics that has pervaded Europe, particularly since the end of the Cold War. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. No, the idea that we live in some kind of post-political world where everything is decided by negotiation and where militaries don't matter. I mean, you know, it's a, you know, and, and I have to say, I understand the impulse of it. I understand why people want that world to exist. I especially understand why Germans want it to exist. You know, they like the idea of being in a world where, you know, Germany doesn't need to have an army. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. Um, and, you know, won't be for the rest of our lifetimes. And finally, just on, on this, what do you make of the talk you hear quite often, even from senior levels in Europe, that when it comes to Ukrainian membership of the European Union, we could be waiting decades? Do you think that's fair enough, given the sort of complexity of the accession process, or should, should an exception be made, assuming that the conflict does come to an end? I mean, that's, you know, the, think about what it means for the conflict to come to an end and what kind of Ukraine will then emerge from a conflict. It's going to be a very, very different kind of country than it was before. Um, and I think, you know, I don't want to make any predictions here because, you know, you, you, can, you, can, you can lose money betting on Europe, you know, in, in, in either direction, actually. You know, bet that it's going to fail, you lose. You know, bet that it's going to succeed, you lose. <laughs> it's a, um, but I think the... You know, if the war ends and Ukraine, you know, remains a viable state, it's going to have a completely different kind of leadership. It's going to be a different kind of place. Um, it's going to be a place that will attract investment that will be that will have just won the biggest war of the 21st century. Um, that will be seen as a place of innovation and creativity. Um, you know, a place run by very young people. It's already run by very young people, and I think the the attractiveness of having it in Europe is going to be much greater than we can imagine right now. So, you know, you have to, you have to imagine yourself into a different place where Ukraine is is a is a victorious military power and in fact maybe even the best army in NATO outside of the United States um, and an economy that's going to be recovering very very rapidly. And you could see a lot of people say, well, let's have them in, you know, um, you know, you know, for for for, for those reasons. Okay. I'm going to try and be uncharacteristically disciplined, and we could talk about this for the whole session, but I want to move on to just talk quickly about your work on democracy and authoritarianism. And I just want to start with a couple of specific questions, just out of, out of interest. I mean, and the first is about the state of democracy in the US. Would you see a DeSantis presidency as the Republican Party stepping back from the precipice or, or an institutionalization of some of the more problematic tendencies of Trump in a sort of slightly more palatable form, maybe? I feel it's slightly early to talk about a DeSantis presidency. Um, and I would also say there are a lot of things that we still don't really know about DeSantis. I mean, for one thing, we don't know what his foreign policy is. Um, there, there, there are one or two things that are positive about him um, and one or two things that are very negative. The thing that worries me about him the most is the the kind of performative, show-offy crackdowns both on private companies and on education in Florida. Um, and so in order to play these elaborate media culture war games, um, DeSantis has put a lot of pressure on schools and universities in Florida, you know, on various 
cultural so-called woke issues, um, you know, limiting what people are allowed to say, what li- what books librarians are allowed to provide, this kind of thing. And this is, you know, very dangerous and playing with fire. I mean, this is, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's playing around with censorship and with um, attacks on free speech of a kind that, you know, we've seen some versions of in the, you know, informally, but we haven't had them as a, as a, as a part of formal government. Um, and I find that about him profoundly disturbing. Even this game that he played with the Disney Corporation, I don't know if, if that made it over into the news over there, you know, the, depriving them of, of some special privilege, some legal privileges that they had in Florida because of their, um, you know, positive commentary about gay people. I mean, this is a, you know, we haven't had that kind of state pressure on private companies over cultural or personal issues really in recent memory. I mean, I can't, I can't think of another recent example of it. And this seems to have been a DeSantis innovation. Um, and I would worry that taking something like that on the national scale would be devastatingly disruptive and divisive, you know, and, and damaging to American democracy. And so, so, so although I can see that, you know, he's shied away from some of the extreme elements of Trumpism, he's not as kind of crazy as Trump. He doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't seem as out of control as Trump. He doesn't seem as um, narcissistic as Trump. In other words, you know, it doesn't seem like his politics are all about him and his personal needs, which is what Trump feels like when you, when you, when you watch him and hear him. Um, I think he, he has, there are elements of him that could be very dangerous. I mean, some of this may be games that he's playing in order to win Republican support, you know, particularly support of the kind of Republican entertainment complex media. Um, but, but but I, I I'm I I I would like to know a lot more about him before feeling comfortable that he represents the party moving on. The other the other the other specific question I wanted to ask you is just what your view was and how optimistic you are about the elections in this year in Poland. As things stand now, um, the the opposition should win. Um, and if you look at the polling and you look at the at the at the way the votes are distributed right now, there's essentially. Um, there's one large opposition party and sort of depending on how you count two or three smaller ones, um, some of them will probably unify or run as coalitions between now and um, and, and now in the election, which is next autumn. Um, what I'm not sure about is how the what the government will do. I didn't believe that the current Polish government will just allow themselves to lose an election. So I don't exactly know how they're going to cheat or what they're going to do, but I'm afraid they'll do something. I, I, I can't I can't pinpoint it. Um, they may arrest other political leaders. They may change the rules. They're, I know they're looking to do it. They're, they're doing lots of calculations about voting rules to see what they can alter in order to make sure that they win. Um, it's it's going to be very hard for them to lose, uh, partly because they've stolen so much money and they've corrupted the political system um, so profoundly that they you know, for them losing power could mean for some of them going to jail. And they, of course, don't want that. Um, And so I think they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure they can't lose. But on paper right now, the opposition would win. Um, And so I I leave you with that thought. And we've got about nine months to go um, for this to for for this to work itself out. And I imagine by late summer, early autumn, it'll be quite a um, 
it'll be quite a divisive and angry story. I have to say, loser's consent strikes me as one of those things that we rather took for granted when it existed uh, and are coming to miss now in, in democracies in the world. You know, it's really, if you, if, you, if you think about it, you were asking me earlier about democracy. I mean, in a way, it's the most remarkable and kind of, you know, unexpected aspect of democracy. If you think about what democracy really requires, it requires that if you lose an election, you have to say, all right, I'm going to let my political enemies run the country for the next four years, and I'm not going to stop them. Um, But it also means that if you win an election, you have to say, okay, I'm going to run the country for the next four years, but I'm going to leave open the possibility that my political enemies will defeat me in four years time. And I'm going to make I'm going to keep open, you know, the very, the, you know, the free media, the rule of law, the independent court system. I'm going to leave all that um, in place so that I can be defeated in four years. I mean, that's a lot to ask of politicians. Um, no, and- I, I, wonder if, I do wonder if we'll look back at Bush Gore and the Supreme Court as a sort of high point of that, because I remember being struck at the time by the fact that, you know, when the high court ruled, that was that. That was that. And, and Gore didn't walk around the country saying stop the steal. And he didn't create an alternative political movement demanding that he get his, you know, that, that, he, that he get the White House back. I mean, you're, you're right. It is extraordinary. Uh, in, I mean, I think a lot of this was, you know, in certainly in, in Britain and the United States, you know, it was this was all made possible by the sense of but there was a kind of shared consensus about several important, not about everything, but about the nature of the country, the nature of the political system. We agreed that this was the political system that we wanted to have, and therefore we accepted the we all accepted the rules. Um, and that has frayed at the end. I mean, it's absolutely frayed in Poland, where it worked for 25 years until we had a political party come to power that didn't want it to work anymore. Um, and it's, of course, fraying before our eyes in the United States. So this is what people of my generation know as an intermission. So while you grab your Kia Aura and your vanilla ice cream, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter because there you'll figure out everything we're doing and get yourself places to our exciting range of events. Subscribe now. Just, I mean, there were many things I really liked about Twilight of Democracy, but one of them was how you sort of mix the analytical and the personal. And I just wondered... Do you think the fact that you know many of the people you're writing about gives you an insight that others don't have, or does it make it harder to analyze? So one one of the reasons I wrote one one, one of the reasons I wrote that book, um, which, as you know, it's about Britain, America, Europe, Poland, um, and and the and the and the emergence of an authoritarian right in all those countries, um, maybe less so in Britain, but but elsewhere, um, was that I. I I really had the feeling that I'd lived through a piece of history and understood just by watching people around me, you know, what political change looked like in a way that I would never have expected. So I I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's special insight, but the, you know, things that I'd only read about before in books, you know, this feeling your friends are shifting or this feeling of um, the, you know, the mood changing or the dynamic becoming different. I realized that I had experienced in my own life, you know, that I had seen people around me begin to take take on different characteristics and it even changing their behavior. Um, and so um, and that was the thing I was trying to write about. I mean, it's funny. I was talking the other night to my husband about a mutual friend of ours who is now a 
you know, an absolutely leading figure in the authoritarian right in Poland, um, somewhat behind the scenes. She's not a famous person. Um, and I was joking that, you know, I wrote this whole book basically inspired by her. You know, I was trying to explain her behavior. And at some level, I still don't understand it. You know, I still can't, you know, tell you what she's doing. Um, so so on the one hand, it, it, it gave me insight. I think it helped me. It certainly alerted me to the nature of the problem in a way that maybe it didn't for others. Um, but I can't say that it gave me the final answers. And I'm still, you know, I still eagerly read every analysis of this that I can. I don't think I have some kind of monopoly of of understanding of the, you know, of the appeal of autocracy. You know, what is it that drives people? What is it that makes people doubt democracy, think it can't work, find it weak, find it, um, you know, insufficient? You know, what are the, what are, what are the, the motors of that? You know, I, as I said, I lived around it. I observed it. I saw people who were changed by it, but I don't have a, um, I don't have a full explanation. I mean, one of one of the themes that comes out of the book quite powerfully, both in when you're discussing Karen Stenner's work on author, authoritarian predisposition, and when you're talking about conspiracy theories, is complexity. That the sheer complexity of politics drives people to look for simplicity via authoritarianism, via conspiracy theories and the like. And actually reading it, one of the things I, I read, you know, when I was reading the book, one of the things that sort of gave me real pause for thought was, you know, has politics and the, the issues that confront us simply become too complex to preserve democracy. That is to say, you know, the world is a very complicated place. We're facing all sorts of challenges, whether it's climate, whether it's technology, whether it's, you know, aging populations. And, and, and the solutions to all of those are messy, complicated. And, you know, is, is that a real threat to democracy? Has politics become more complicated? I mean, politics has always been complicated. I mean, there, there is a... Um... There is an element of that, that they politics have become very complicated. And and the other aspect of it that really bothers people is that the degree of noise around politics is is much higher than it was. So the very divisiveness that, um, you know, that is created by the emergence of a far right or indeed a far left um, is part of what then propels people to the far right or the far left. So people are people are bothered. I think individuals are bothered not so much by the complexity of the issues, but by the anger of the debate about them and the shouting about it. Um, and that's what makes people feel, you know, I can't take this anymore. I want some. I want someone to make it stop. And this is what partic- people who have what Karen Center. This is a. Um, you know, a, a kind of behavioral economist whose work I describe in, in my book, um, you know, one of the conclusions she comes is that for a portion of the population, the appeal of unity, homogeneity, um, and simplicity are somehow unified, you know, are linked. And the emergence and the and the experience of living in a very diverse, very loud, very angry society where people vehemently disagree is too much for them. And they start to want, you know, a single leader or a single system, or they want to kind of shut it all down. So it's, so it's not just that political issues are complicated. It's also that the, the nature of the debate itself has changed. And does, does, does the internet, does social media make that worse, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's, I think it's not only social media, it's the, it's the, it's social media. It's the, um, it's the multiplication of television stations. It's the nature of 24 hour news, um, it's the fact that news needs to be negative in order to get people's attention. 
Um, it's the fact that it's not social media itself. It's the social media algorithms, which favor emotion and anger and disagreement. I and mean, we all know how that works now, I think. Um, all of those things put together, I think, uh, make people feel very frustrated with any kind of participation in the public space and desire to be distant from it. You know, get me away from this. I don't want to hear about it. I want someone to shut it all down. You know, I want Ron DeSantis to come and make everyone be quiet so that there won't be all these teachers talking about difficult subjects like race relations in Florida. I don't, I don't know if you're one of those authors that reads reviews of their books, but uh, David Goodhart did a review of your book, which is quite interesting. And one of the things he argues is what's missing from your account and many accounts like it is the fact that many liberals fail to appreciate that they carry the can for some of the populism we see now because they impose policies that were not only unpopular, but which left large chunks of the population sort of economically insecure. Do you think, is there an element of truth to that, do you think? I mean, of course, I think in the book even I say, I mean, of course there are economic parts of this story. I mean, there's a, um, uh, you know, and, and in that sense, both the populists and the left who've made arguments about economics are you know, have, have, which by the way, were often made by liberals as well, have, have, you know, some accuracy. But I don't think economics is a sufficient explanation. And people like David Goodhart, who want the story to be economic, um, I think are missing an enormous cultural dimension. Um, You know, I don't think Brexit happened for economic reasons. You know, I don't think it was, I don't think that was the, if you look at who voted for it, you know, including the people who I know who voted for it, um, we aren't talking about the poorest people in the country. If you look at who voted for Trump, you know, in the United States, it wasn't the poorest Americans. You know, the poorest Americans voted for um, voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, so it's a um, it's a it's a oversimplification to describe this as a as a purely economic phenomenon. So I would recommend to you some work by a uh, political scientist at Oxford called Jane Green, who has focused not on uh, economic deprivation, but economic insecurity, which actually a lot of people who are pretty well off feel as well. And she's, she draws some convincing links between what's happening in our politics and the phenomenon of economic insecurity rather than just deprivation. Yeah, that would make that would make sense to me, actually. I mean, feel and, and insecurity can be real or imagined. I mean, you know, I, I know very it's true. I know very wealthy people who feel insecure. Um, so. So, so in, in insecurity, and I think um, the sense of living in a culture that's undergoing a very radical change creates creates insecurities of it's not just economic insecurity; it's a broader, you know, question about where you fit into your society. And I think that is that that does explain a lot of um, a lot of political change right now. If you don't mind, can we just finish by talking briefly about the UK? Uh, you, you wrote something last summer in which you said, if British politics were a Falkland, Faulkner novel, Brexit would be the long ago tragedy that haunts many of its main characters. Can you explain what you meant by that? Um, well, for those of you who haven't read Faulkner, the, the one, one or two of his most famous novels are about the sort of consequences a hundred years later of some horrible thing that happened, you know, in the, in the 19th century to do with slavery and intermarriage, I mean, you, you know, um, and, and, the, and, and you can't really understand what's going on unless you understand the past. And I've um, certainly felt that the events of the up to including um, Boris Johnson's 
prime ministership, Liz Truss's very brief prime ministership, um, all of those things were knock-on effects in some way of the expectations created by Brexit um, in the right of the Tory party and the failure of those expectations, um, you know, has created a kind of fundamental instability. I mean, essentially something that they believed was going to happen, a kind of positive transformation of Britain that was supposed to come from this event didn't happen. And so there's a part of the party that has always, that has, you know, that, that has and will go on saying, you know, it's because we weren't radical enough. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the, 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 the radicalism of 2016 wasn't matched later on. Um, it's why, it's why Theresa May fell. Um, it's why Liz Truss had that, you know, came out with that extreme, um, budget that 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 caused her failure, um, and so the, there's a desire on the part of the party to to kind of, you know, once again show that radicalism that we had, you know, seven years ago, um, and that continues to haunt them and continues to explain a lot of otherwise inexplicable behavior. I mean, there there is a real sense of the sort of communism was never really tried about some of the Brits. exactly. You know, it wasn't it, the the ideas were good. It was the people who failed. I mean, that was what was said about communism. You know, if we just keep trying communism again with a different cast of characters, we'll finally make it work. And I I have this feeling about Brexit as well. You know that you know we just need to keep we need to find the right formula, the right relation with the EU, whatever it is. You know, we need to we need to create Singapore on the Thames or Dubai on the Thames. You know, we need a we need a radical transformation of the country, um, and once we have that, then you know the, the the Brexit dream will have been fulfilled. And and then and then of course it doesn't happen. You know, or trust tries it and it causes the markets to collapse. You know, so um, you know, so this constant feeling of 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 having having not achieved what they thought they were going to achieve continues to be in the background of all these political machinations. So yes, I. Certainly the Tory party will be haunted by it, I think, for the rest of our lifetimes. And one, of, one, of the re- one of the really interesting things about your analysis of populism that I think distinguishes it from a lot of the sort of political science is there's an element to which you describe it as driven by self-serving elites. And do you think that is ultimately what's going on here? This isn't a sort of bottom-up thing. It isn't, it isn't the left-behind... Uh, clamoring for change, but it is a cynical maneuver by part of the elite to empower themselves. Oh, this is one of the things that's driven me the craziest, actually, about most of the analysis of populism. Um, and it, it's often often the people who who are most interested in economics. You know, people want to look at a, a bottom up process, and they don't look at the whether it's the journalists, the propagandists, the the politicians, they don't look at the people at the top of the society who have enabled populism or whatever, or I, I, I don't actually like the, I, the word populism doesn't appear in my book. I mean, I would call it, I would call it autocracy, you know, um, or, 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 or a new kind of radicalism. Um, most of the people who led um, the Trump movement were very wealthy, you know, extremely elite people from, you know, most of the, most of the people who continue to, to be the most some of the most radical members of the far right in America went to some of the most elite universities. Um, you know, the same is true in, in, in Poland, where some of my acquaintances were absolutely, you know, the beneficiaries of 1989. They were well-educated. They were well-traveled. Um, they spoke foreign languages, and they were the ones who decided 
um, to lead the charge against the, you know, the existing um, democratic order. You know, and of course, famously, the same is true of Brexit, where the absolutely the leaders and the popularizers and the people who came up with the whole thing were, were you know, were from the very top of society, from Boris Johnson on down. Um, and, it, it, you know, and it, this is why I thought it was very important to understand their motivations, um, which are which were different and various. I mean, some of them are ideologues. Some of them always believed it. Some of them saw opportunities. They saw... You know, they saw in the possibility of radical political change, they saw different new chances for themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson being the most famous, you know, he, he reckoned that, you know, Brexit was his way of becoming prime minister. And he was completely right. You know, he, that was an accurate and correct calculation because it broke the previous party leadership. And you can see that, you know, you can see that in the Trump administration, too, you know, that, that some of the people who immediately you know, flocked to work for it were people who would not have been able to work in previous Republican administrations for either for personal reasons or because they weren't qualified or because they were too crazy, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and so, and so the, you know, and so breaking the system, you know, doing a radical, you know, revolutionary change to the system, this creates, you know, new opportunities for, especially for elites. Um, and you can see that, you know, in every single country where there's been, a revolution of that kind, including, I should say, you know, Venezuela, which is where there was a left-wing um, populist revolution, you know, as well as Hungary, where there was a right-wing populist revolution. So it's it's not even really to do with the nature of the ideology; it's just to do with the nature of the change. And um, the, one, the other thing you mentioned is the need for writers, intellectuals, pamphleteers, and bloggers for authoritarians to come to power. And I just wondered whether you thought the British media were, in some sense, culpable. Yeah. I mean, some were some of the British media responsible. Yes, I mean, you know. I mean, we tend to think in this country they're uniquely bad because of the because of the tabloids. Um, it's true that the, the British tabloids are um, are probably you know I used to, I've ex- I accepted them for such a long time as I lived as you know I lived in Britain for many years and I kind of accepted the tabloids as part of the landscape, a sort of amusing, you know, like kind of Monty Python esque aspect of 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 British public life. And only recently I've understood that they are, I mean, certainly compared to other European countries, they are pretty unique in their, um, uh, you know, in their, in their targeting of people, in their, you know, twisting of headlines, in their, in their, in their choice of particular themes and ideas to, to pound home repeatedly over and over again. You know, the ones about immigration are the most famous, but there are some others as well. Um, and so, so... And because of their close connection to this elite that we were just talking about, I mean, they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, you know, the people who run the Daily Mail and the people who run the Tory party are all friends. Um, and so, you know, they, they do perform a kind of, you know, a kind of populist role. I mean, there's, you, you don't want to overdo it because not everybody reads them and not everybody sees them and they don't set the tone for everything. But they're certainly a part of the story and a part of the explanation, yes. And finally, I mean, we talked about uh, losers' consent and, and the handover of power. I mean, the British constitutional and political system have been through the ringer in the last sort of seven, eight years. But do you think if we got a Starmer government, if we got a Labour government, if the Tories went into opposition, that would mark a real moment of recovery for the UK? Or do you think it's a, the problems are far longer term? Than that? Again, you know, it's like asking about DeSantis. You know, I don't like to predict because a lot depends on the circumstances under which if under which Starmer would win. And if he, you know, if there is a kind of Tory wipeout that some people have predicted, 
um, he would then have the opportunity to make really big changes um, for, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, and then you could imagine something rather, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, a path to reform, maybe reform of the House of Lords, maybe, um, you know, maybe some other elements of the British system that don't seem to be working could be changed. I mean, if he if it's an if it's a sort of normal election and he has a normal small majority um, and, you know, then then it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to say how revolutionary you know, it would be, I mean, a lot of what Britain needs isn't revolutionary. It just needs, you know, government with different priorities. I mean, it needs, for example, for the British relationship with the European Union not to be antagonistic, you know, um, you know, you need to, you need to, re- you know, rethink your relation with your biggest trading partners, our biggest trading partners, and, and begin to, um, you know, and, and, and begin to think in terms of win-win and mutual benefits and how do we how do we create a trade relationship that's good for everybody and not how do we score brownie points, you know, against the Tory rebels, you know, that so, you know, I mean, by definition, having a labor government would enable some more sensible governing to happen because you wouldn't have the constant pressure from the the, dis, the the group that we were talking about before, the kind of dissatisfied Brexiteers who feel that, you know, feel that, you know, the ideas were good, but the people failed. Interesting. Well, listen, Anne, I could have talked to you for a lot, lot longer. I thought that was absolutely <laughs> fascinating. But let me just say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank Thanks you. a lot. I enjoyed it.